Episode 53, Utilizing Artificial Intelligence in Your Legal Research. My conversation with Fast Cases Vice President of Litigation Workflow and Analytics Content, Damian Real. Our next guest is Damian Real. Damien is a technology lawyer with experience in software design, data science, data privacy, and cybersecurity. After working for state and federal judges and litigating for 15 years, Damien's work at FastCase includes parsing and extracting valuable data from 700 million legal documents, integrating AI-backed technologies to improve legal workflows and to power legal data analytics, providing substantive insights. At Sali, the legal data standard, Damien has expanded an ontology of over 10,000 legal tags, helping the legal industry's development of AI and analytics. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Just a quick shout out before we start. Are you enjoying the TechSavvyLayer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Also, consider buying us a cup of coffee or two from the link on our blog to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks, and again, enjoy. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. And to get things started, what is your current tech setup? My current tech setup is uh, I currently have three monitors. Uh, my uh, rig is a Microsoft Surface laptop, uh, so okay. I'm a Windows Windows guy. So I have a one uh, one machine in front of me, uh, and then to my right is a portrait uh, portrait mode monitor, okay. uh, and then to the right of that is a third monitor that is landscape mode. So if I'm reading emails and doing right. documents, it's in the portrait mode. If uh, if I'm doing spreadsheets or other things on landscape mode, I'm doing that on landscape. Well, wait, I have to ask, what is behind you? So behind me is a recording studio. Uh, oh, by which, okay. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've uh, one of my side projects. I get I gave a TED talk that's been seen two million times at this point, okay. and uh, that was done uh, on this behind me. And the topic was I've made all the music. Uh, that is, I've made and copyrighted two hundred. I'm um, four hundred seventeen billion melodies. Uh, that's billion with a B. Copyrighted all four hundred seventeen billion melodies, and then placed them all in the public domain to be able to protect you stole my melody lawsuit defendants. Uh, that was all done in the studio that you see behind me. Oh, excellent. Is that involved with a concept I've recently learned about looping? Not not looping. No, I, I did that through brute force. So much like you can brute force a password to go A, 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 B, A, C until it hits your password. I did that with music. So I went da 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 you said you copyright it. Is it for your use only or is it for the public domain or am I just a little confused? So as soon as it's written to disk, it's copyrighted automatically. So I've written right. to disk 417 billion, and then I place them all in the public domain uh, okay. under Creative Commons Zero. Uh, and okay. the purpose of that is to be able to protect you stole my melody lawsuit defendants. So they could point to my data set saying, hey, you can't sue me over this thing because uh, it's not copyrightable because uh, it's uh, un- either on un- in the public domain, number one, or because it's unoriginal, therefore uncopyrightable, as shown by Damien in his all the music project. And so people can use that. They can, absolutely. Okay, excellent. Uh, that's that's. So there's a concept, and maybe you can better expound upon this, uh, called looping, where you can get certain melodies, I guess, to automatically loop in such a way that you can use it yourself. The looping is certainly something that musicians like me do, uh, but that's uh, usually uh, the loops themselves are copyrightable, uh, unless okay. they're uh, so generic that they're not copyrightable. But those are still, uh, you can't uh, make them public domain just by looping. Okay. Well, I I am still learning this concept. So by all means, um, do not look to me for expertise on this and let alone any legal advice. Um, 
Well, so okay, so hold on. We talked. So wait, your monitors. Who made your monitors? Uh, I think these are Dell these days. Uh, I've not upgraded them in about four years or so. So they're relatively, uh, relatively old, but they're 24 inch, 24 inch, and then mm-hmm. uh, the Surface laptop's own uh, display. So why a Surface laptop? I had a Surface Book, which had mm-hmm. that was a tablet that detached from the keyboard, yeah. and yeah. I, I I learned that um I used it zero uh, percent of the time in tablet mode and one hundred percent of right. the time in laptop mode. Uh, therefore, I thought okay. I don't need the detachability. I do need the better yeah. keyboard and that kind of thing. So the Surface laptop works better. Well, what? So I have a Surface um, Pro, the tablet, uh, and basically it's for the blog because you know because I use a Mac for my office and I, to keep myself a little bit legit in the sense of talking about stuff, I, I need to have both. And to be honest, I'm not happy with it. And I'm planning on on upgrading to something different. So what has your experience been with the Surface Laptop? The thing I like most about the Surface Laptop is the keyboard uh, is a very uh, easy to type on. Mm-hmm. I, I Normal ty- laptops, I type at about 110 words per minute. Okay. I can usually get about 120, mm-hmm. 130 words per minute on mm-hmm. the Surface Laptop. So the, the key distance is really uh, beautiful. And also mm-hmm. the monitor is just stunning. Uh, and then the, the camera is really good as well. Whether you're in light, low light or medium light, um, the camera is just top notch. So those are the reasons usually I've, uh, that I've stuck with it. How's the processing been on that? I, I have an i7, uh, so I have mm-hmm. a, at least at the top of the line at the time that I bought it, uh, and right, it's right. been great. Uh, i7, and I've maxed out at, I think, 32 RAM, if I'm yep. 32 okay. gigs of RAM. And the battery life? You know, I'm usually connected to the, the power as I am now, but usually I can get about uh, eight hours or so uh, from uh, charge. Really? At least wow. it, I, I did at the beginning of its life. Uh, now it's probably gotten worse, but I haven't tested it lately. Yeah, because the Surface Pro that I have, it seems like I could barely get an hour and a half out of it if I'm lucky. Oh, which... wow. Yeah, no, I've gone just recently. I went uh, five hours with it, uh, with it still having about 30% left. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's good to hear. Because uh, as I mentioned, I'm a Mac office, uh, not a Windows office for the day job. That being said, do you prefer Windows over Mac? Is this I do. Just what they gave you, or yeah, no. I, I've uh, I was a Mac guy until uh, 1997, uh, and then I went to law school, and they said, of course, you, if you go to law school, you can't be a Mac person. So right. I switched over to the dark side uh, to Microsoft right. uh, then, uh, and I haven't gone back. Uh, even though um, my um, I did cybersecurity for a while, my biggest mm-hmm. thing was that Facebook hired me and my company to investigate Cambridge Analytica. So I spent about a year of my life on Facebook's campus working with Facebook's data scientists and my former FBI, CIA, NSA people. So when I was doing that engagement, uh, Facebook gave me a laptop. They said, would you like a Mac or a PC? Um, I lasted about a day and a half with my Mac. Uh, and there was so much muscle memory that I had built up on the Windows side right. uh, that uh, after a day and a half, I said, I, I just can't do work. I had to jump over, over to the Windows again. All right. Excellent. Cool. So tell us what else you got on uh, So uh, I've got a, a microphone. It's an out key uh, condenser microphone uh, that I use uh, that turns out uh, is really good during the pandemic. Uh, it's on a, um, uh, a kind of a scissor uh, stand, uh, so I'm able to move it around uh, to move it mouth level. I also have in-ear monitors. I'm a musician, so uh, so I have the same monitors you see with people on stage. I have mm-hmm, an mm-hmm. Sure spelled S-H-U-R-E in-ear monitors, so uh, if, uh, if you don't look closely, it might seem like I'm not wearing any headphones at all, but it turns out I'm wearing in-ear monitors, so you just can't see them. I uh, behind me uh, when I'm I'm faced this way, and of course my your listeners can't see which way I'm facing. But if I'm, if I'm facing the direction of Michael Eisenberg right now, I'm working, and if I'm turned to my right, there's a whole other computer setup that yeah. I'm playing that as I'm doing music. So uh, I think I've exhausted all of the hardware and uh, stuff that's cool on my work side. Are you at a standing sitting desk? I am at a standing desk. Yeah, I've been standing uh, for the last eight years now. I think uh, so. Yeah, twenty. 
no, it's been 10 years. 2012 is when I started. So I've been standing for 10 years. I stand uh, 100% of the time. That is, oh, I've, wow. not, okay. I've not sat for work in 10 years. And uh, it's uh, the only way that I can work these days. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a pure standing desk. Do you have any special padding underneath your feet? I do. Yeah. So they they have anti-fatigue mats that are often yep. used in kitchens. And so I have an yep. anti-fatigue mat. Uh, when I worked at Thompson Reuters, my boss said on top of the anti-fatigue mat, what you should get is a bath mat to put on top of the anti-fatigue mat. Okay. Uh, and it, it feels like you're standing on clouds. Uh, that's oh, one wow. of the reasons okay. I can stand for uh, 12 hours a day and not get tired is because I have the anti-fatigue mat on top of, uh, and then on top of that, the bath mat. So you mentioned something about a scissor stand for your mic. What is that exactly? It's uh, it's when you think about uh, when you see radio stations uh, and they can mm -hmm. kind of move the mic around uh, and it can kind of keep the mic off the desk and lift it up and move it. Right. Um, that's uh, that's uh, that's what I have. So I, I can move around uh, as I want. So like it, it could be here, it could be here, it could be here. Uh, it's I'm right now moving the mic around in 360 degrees space. Is that basically a mic arm? It's a mic arm. That's right. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So is it attached to your desk or the wall? It is attached to the, to the desk using a vice grip-like thing. Gotcha. And the reason why I ask is I have a glass top desk, so I don't want to be mounting that, you know, a, a vice grip to the, the glass because I'm, I'm fear it's going to break it. Not that the, the glass is anything cheap. You know, actually, it was a $1,500 table from Room and Board, which uh, they make great stuff. Um, and so I recently got a Mike's wall mount. So I've got to install that. Once I get that installed, I'll be able to get it off my desk, which, you know, kind of drives me nuts. But that's that's another story. Mm -hmm. What else you got there? So uh, I've also got a Microsoft keyboard. It's an ergonomic yeah. keyboard where yep. it's got the split key. Um, and I'm, uh, that's uh, got much like I like the Microsoft Surface keyboard. I similarly mm -hmm. like the Microsoft uh, uh, keyboard there too. Uh, I have a Logitech uh, new laser mouse uh, that I have here. It's a Logitech MX Master 35. It was about 100 bucks. I just bought this about... Uh, three weeks ago and it's amazing mm -hmm. um the primary benefit of the this mouse is that um my other mouse clicked a lot and it was such a beautiful mic it picked up all of the clicks uh ah. but this new one uh is pretty much silent uh, for example i'm oh. clicking i'm clicking right now but you cannot hear that i'm clicking right now so uh printer Dude, is that what you print on dead trees on? Uh, yes, the, yes. Okay. Back okay. That's, uh, I, I do have a brother, um, a monochrome printer that uh, I can say safely that I've not used throughout the entire pandemic. I've not printed one sheet of paper. So I have a thing that I don't use. Excellent. Well, that's, that's, that it's a good thing. And admittedly, the, the powerhouse printer I have now, I have not used to its capabilities in, in many years, especially uh, since the start of the pandemic. And since everything is going electronic, thankfully, you know, something I have to worry about that often, although I recently filed a complaint in federal court that requires me to print it and then serve summons and use my old stamps.com account to, you know, create the certified return receipt mailing labels, um, which wow. by the way, if you do a lot of mailing, I do highly encourage stamps.com because it really makes my life a lot easier when it comes to forms and not have to buying rolls of stamps all the time and worrying about, you know, the right amount of postage and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, when I was so, in law school in 2002, stamps.com gave me a free uh, free uh, scale to be able to just weigh my, yeah. my uh, yeah, back in the day. They they gave me one too. And, you know, my my account at uh, staples.com has pretty much been, you know, quiet because that's where I used to get my paper. Because remember back in law school, you, you buy like a, a box of paper from Staples to use in your laser printer. And that would last you at least a year, if not longer. And plus, we'd get it so much cheaper than buying it individually at, you know, the drugstore or even from Staple itself. Any other tech back there that you'd like to share with us? There's a, 
a lot of music stuff that your lawyers uh, audience will not care about. Um, so I'll say, yeah, so I have a lot of software stuff, but I think we've exhausted the hardware. And so your cam, is this the cam from your Surface? It is. Yeah. So it's a pretty good camera. Yeah. Is it a 1081 or 4K? I, I assume 4K, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, very sharp. The the hardware is one thing, but the software is really good. That it has really good white balance. So uh, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of webcams will be bluish or greenish. Uh, but this adjusts uh, on the fly to be make you look as natural as possible. Excellent, excellent. Well, you look great. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I wasn't fishing. Um, <laughs> well, let's get into the questions. What are your Three favorite tech tools that help make your workflows sync. Uh, so one is Calendly. Uh, so for mm -hmm. those who don't know, Calendly is a way that uh, if someone wants to meet, and I meet for a large part of my day, I would say two thirds of my day is meeting with people. And mm -hmm. so I will send them rather than doing the dance to be able to say, what time's good for you? I don't know. How about next week? Okay. How about this Tuesday? No, Tuesday's not good. How about Thursday? Uh, instead, I just send a single link and then I uh, on my calendar gets thrown an appointment. So it saves, uh, since I literally have dozens of meetings every week, uh, mm -hmm. I can, it, it just saves me an innumerable amount of time with that uh, prep. Um, so anyway, so I love Calendly is my thing, number one. And, you know, it's interesting, Calendly, and I use Calendly for the blog, but I actually use Acuity Schedule for the firm. And it's amazing how they're becoming more and more integrated naturally, if you will, with the different uh, online cloud CRMs like Clio and Rocket Matter, in my case, how they're automatically just working with them uh, to get it naturally integrated so that there's no third-party product like Zapier that you need to use in order to get everything to talk. That's number one. Number two? Number two, uh, Trello is something that's an oldie but a goodie. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a Kanban board where you're able to be able to say, here are several columns of things that I either uh, want to do, am doing right now, or that I have finished with. And so you can have your tasks. And at the beginning of each day, I be able to see, okay, what's my backlog of tasks that I need to do? Yep. At the beginning of the day, I say, okay, here are the things I want to get done today. Uh, and then as I do them, I move them to doing. And then as I finish them, I move them to done. Um, I would say that this is the best way for me to be able to think about what uh, are the big rocks that need to be moved today. Uh, and I use Trello to do that. Let me ask you this one question, because I'm trying to use Trello for the blog. What would you say is a good resource to use to learn about Trello? And I, I would say that it uh, depends on your use case. Uh, so there's Trello for lawyers. So if I want to use Trello for my uh, for my uh, legal work case, uh, work, uh, uh, there's a uh, the Agile lawyer, um, why am I forgetting his name? He's a, an Oregon lawyer who is really smart, and I'm sad that I'm forgetting his name. But anyway, he would be a good, um, I will I will email you his name uh, that people Please. can be able to I, I, uh, do that. But he, he has really good advice to be able to say, um, I, in my practice, want to be able to share maybe a Trello board with my associates or mm -hmm. with my partners to be able to, so everyone can see who's doing what, when, where, when somebody has finished a task. Um, all of those things uh, are things that... Um, that uh, this person whose name I'm forgetting is really good at. So that's for legal tasks, uh, just for productivity tasks mm -hmm. in general. Um, I don't know if I don't have any resources. Uh, it's uh, it's largely if you just do a search for how to Kanban uh, or how to Kanban, K-A-N-B-A-N, that's probably the best way to do it. Excellent. So then what is number three? 
Uh, number three is a Chrome plugin, Chrome the the browser, and yep. it's a, a thing called Text Blaze, uh, and that is an expander. Uh, so Text Blaze, if you uh, type the forward slash and then a made up symbol, uh, then right. it expands it out to something you uh, yep. do very often. So for example, I every time I want to send my Calendly link, I do mm -hmm. forward slash cal, and right. then it expands it to the URL for my yep. thirty minute. So that's my most exp uh, most common one. So I if I say slash c sixty. That's a 60 minute Calendly interview. If right. I uh, if I do slash smile, that puts a smile emoji. If I do a slash rock, that does a rock on fingers, you know, horns. Um, anyway, so this uh, I have about a hundred different things that I can expand out um, just to make life faster, better, stronger. Uh, so yeah, text blaze is a pretty cool thing. Well, let me ask you: Have you ever seen Text Expander? Uh, same idea. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Text Expander. I think you have to install on your machine. Uh, uh, or in, 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 maybe I'm mistaken, but at least last I checked, Text Expander was re required in installation. Uh, right. Whereas uh, Text Blaze is a plugin on your browser, therefore right. you have right. it on every single device you have, whether it's uh, whether it's your phone. Right. Uh, right. I have an Android phone or my Chromebooks that I have all over the house or right, my right. work machine or my home machine or, or, or um, all of these have. Uh, so it's essentially syncing all of my expansions so I can use them wherever I happen to be. Text Expander is similar in the sense that, oh, yes, you do have to uh, install it, but for every device you install it, you can have it sync across your accounts, whether it's a personal account or if you have some sort of enterprise for uh, team building, uh, you know, so everyone's consistent in their responses, et cetera. But the nice thing about Text Expander is, one, I think you can use it in Chrome like you do, but also you can use it in other other programs, Microsoft Word, um, in your calendar program, online. Uh, Etc. I love it. Uh, I use it. You might want to take a look at it just for something different. But then again, if you're just solely doing that for your Chrome browser, then I completely understand something like that. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, when I was a lawyer, I would spend half my time in Outlook and email and then half my right. time in Microsoft Word. Um, uh, but these days I use uh, Office 365 uh, on the web, uh, which I right. find to be even better than the installed version. So my web is all on the uh, my uh, email and calendar is all on the Chrome, Chrome browser. Mm -hmm. And most of my um, these days, most of my writing is on Google Docs, which is, of course, Chrome based. So uh, really, I live in the Chrome, in Chrome these days. And that's why yeah, the text play seems to work pretty well. Do you have any security concerns with Chrome and Google? Uh, I do not. And having having been a cybersecurity guy, I, I, I'm uh, my security antenna is pretty uh, heavily weighted. Um, and I will say that um, I am very privacy and security conscious for every single entity except for Google, uh, whom I've given up. I've given up on trying to keep myself secure from uh, keep private uh, data from uh, Google. I've now resigned myself to know that Google has my telephone. I have an Android phone. Google has my Gmail. Google has my calendar. Uh, Google has a lot of my documents. Um, so anyway, so I've, I've, I've kind of jumped on the Google train uh, where most of my life is built up in the Google train. And the fact that they have really good security, that is that I have two-factor authentication uh, set up for Google. So I have a very, very strong password. And then I have uh, the two-factor authentication set up. Um, I think the risk of security of being breached is really low. Uh, and uh, so anyways, that's the security side of it. Uh, the privacy side of uh, that's, of course, a different matter. That uh, Do I trust Google with my private data? And the answer is probably, um, but uh, yeah, until they break that trust, uh, I'll probably stay that way. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, let me ask you this since I have the 
cybersecurity expert person on. What are three things attorneys need to be aware of when it comes to their own cybersecurity, whether it's personal or business? I would say thing number one is get uh, make sure your passwords are strong. Uh, and so uh, the way that you can do that uh, is to be able to use a password manager uh, to be able to, uh, one, ensure a very long password. And then the, that's thing number one. Uh, and then two, uh, keep it in a password manager uh, so that you have unique passwords for every single thing that you have. So don't use the same password for your uh, Google account than you do for your Facebook account than you do for et cetera. Um, right. Ideally, these would be random strings uh, that uh, are not memorizable. Uh, and you should just keep a password manager to generate those random strings. So for example, for my Facebook account, I have a randomly generated uh, 32 uh, characters uh, that I save in my password manager. Uh, to be able to brute force a 32 character password would take like the heat death of the sun uh, to be able to uh, to be able to break uh, that. Uh, so all anyway, right. so um, all that's to say, uh, don't memorize your password, save them in a password manager. That's thing number two. Uh, and then thing number three is to use two factor authentication uh, to either use your device or a different second factor to be able to uh, if someone gets your password uh, so that they're thwarted by not having the phone that you have with you uh, to be able to uh, get into the account. Well, well, if I may, working backwards, there was an article several weeks ago, and I blogged about it, how one of the things that employees hate doing is logging in, you know, logging into their work computers with their passwords, because it's, you know, it's just one more thing they have to do that so much to the extent that they're not logging out when they should, because, you know, uh, I don't want to be bothered of wasting whatever it's a few seconds in that mental power. So, you know, I encourage people to get password uh, managers. Which one do you use? Uh, I've used several. Uh, these days, I'm using LastPass uh, okay. as a password manager. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a decent one. They have had some uh, breaches uh, in the past, but they mm -hmm. say that the the breaches have never um, uh, exfiltrated. That means and never taken the data out. Uh, so people have gotten in, but they've never get, been able to get data out. But as you can imagine, you want to get a password manager you trust right. uh, because you're keeping your keys to the kingdom with that password right. manager. So uh, at this point, I'm still trusting LastPass despite their um, their data breaches and kind of because they've actually told the, uh, us about the data breaches. Uh, so the fact that they're disclosing them broadly uh, and even if they don't uh, get anything out, they're still telling the world uh, in a way that's going to hurt their business model. And I figure if they're going to be able to tell the world uh, in a, so for stuff that probably isn't necessary, uh, then if something bad really does happen, and they're probably going to tell the world too. Well, may I make a friendly suggestion and you take a look at 1Password? Oh, I, I've heard really good things about 1Password. Yeah. I, I really, I've used it for many years. I really enjoy it. And one nice thing they have with it is something called Watchtower. So when they learn of sites that have been breached, uh, they inform you, especially when you have, you know, whether it's a Facebook account or Google or whatever, they've heard it's been breached. They say, you might want to change your password. Yep. The LastPass has that too. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, so, it, uh, and they also uh, last pass uh, one password may do this as well, but they also scour the dark web. And to the extent that any of one of your passwords shows up at yeah. the dark web, uh, then yeah, that I think shows they up do too. that too. I think they do that too. But the nice thing also, I think with um, fast pass, you said or no, it was last uh, last last pass. Yeah, last pass. Excuse me. That they sync across devices. Yeah, uh, that's uh, my mine does that too. Yeah, uh, and uh, so yeah, so uh, I think that most of the password managers try to get parity on features. So it's not surprising that one password and LastPass are pretty uh, pretty equal. Um, one thing that LastPass has uh, that perhaps one password does as well is they also have a two factor authenticator uh, that mm -hmm. is uh, that is a separate application on your phone. Uh, and um, one thing with your uh, 
LastPass or uh, one uh, password or whatever password manager mm-hmm. you have, you need to be sure to have a long, not just a sentence pa- uh, password, but a past sentence if possible. So, uh, right. you know, a very long one because uh, the longer it is, the harder it is to crack. LastPass has recently, I think in the last month or so, started uh, experimenting with passwordless LastPass, uh, where the idea is that um, it will send a prompt to your phone uh, to be able to say, are you trying to log in? And I click a button on my phone without my master's uh, sentence, uh, and it will say, that's you. We know it's you because it's your phone. Um, So essentially, uh, the pain that you were talking about earlier, where lawyers say, I don't want to log out because I don't want to log back in. Um, Essentially, it's as easy as clicking one button and you're logged in. You don't have to remember the long password. Let pass sentence. Gotcha. All right. So question number two, what are three ways FastCase uses technology, for example, integration, research, et cetera, uh, uniquely or better than its competitors? Cool. Uh, for those who don't know, FastCase is a legal technology company that has about 20 million uh, judicial opinions on the FastCase side and about 700 million judicial opinions and lawyer file documents on the Docket Alarm side. Docket Alarm is a subsidiary. So um, with 720 million uh, judicial opinions and legal documents, we need a, st- a good tech to be able to extract the stuff that matters from that. Uh, in 2020, we acquired a company called Judicata, um, and its uh, uh, proprietors, uh, Ben Pedrick and uh, Ita Garari, um, they have built some of the best technology I've ever seen to be able to parse that amount of uh, data. Uh, and the way that they do that is to use a combination of natural language processing, otherwise known as otherwise known as NLP, uh, to be able to figure out that this is a noun, this is a verb, this is a direct mm-hmm. object, and figure out parts of speech. Uh, and then also to be able to extract entities like uh, this is a motion to dismiss, and that this motion to dismiss was granted, uh, and uh, this is an order uh, granting a motion to dismiss, or this is a motion to reconsider a motion to dismiss, that uh, it's a motion to reconsider, not an actual motion to dismiss. Smith. So they're using um, really smart technology to be able to read sentences like humans read sentences uh, in a programmatic way. So we can essentially churn through 700 million documents uh, in a way that um, to be able to extract the stuff that matters. So you'll ultimately be able to say, um, uh, you know, when I was litigating, I litigated for about 15 years. Uh, My clients like Best Buy would sometimes ask me, what are the odds of winning a motion for summary judgment? And I would say, well, in my 15 years of experience, the odds are pretty good or not bad. Uh, but with Dr. Alarm Fast Case, what we're able to do is say the odds of winning this motion to dismiss in federal courts is 53%. And then they'd say, well, how about in this particular district? I could say, well, this district, it drops down to 47%. And then they say, how about this judge? And we can tell them, okay, this judge is actually better. It's about 60%. And they can say, how about trademark cases? And then I can say, well, trademark cases is about uh, one in three, about 33%. So anyway, so the really smart parsing is able to translate into really smart analytics to be able to uh, give you uh, the percentage chance of winning or losing in a particular court for a particular cause of action in a particular jurisdiction. Well, then two, we got one, got to go with two. Two is, uh, I'm going to go with what we don't use very much at this Mm -hmm. point. So um, so, uh, you hear a lot of companies say, we're using machine learning as a thing that matters. Uh, that turns out to be really good for things like facts. Uh, so uh, in machine learning, if you say, um, what is, uh, I'm going to run a query for, show me a case where somebody swindled somebody. Uh, then using machine learning, you could say it'll pull in all the results where they say somebody screwed you or somebody, uh, you know, pulled the wool over your eyes or, you know, those, those kind of ideas, uh, machine learning is really good for kind of getting those factual nuances where there's, uh, many different ways to be able to say that same thing. Um, and at this point, we uh, 
I we thought about using machine learning for things like motion to dismiss, motion for summary judgment, et cetera. Um, but we found that really, how many ways are there to express motion to dismiss? And it turns out I know of exactly two ways, motion to dismiss. And if you're in California, it's a demur. If you say a motion to dismiss in any other way, people are going to be like, I don't know what you, I don't know what you mean, because the motion to dismiss is the word. You don't need machine learning to be able to extract motions to dismiss. Um, and the same way, how many ways can you say breach of contract? Uh, exactly one way, breach of contract. How many ways to say negligence? Exactly one way, negligence. So anyway, so if you're counting the things that matter from a legal perspective, um, that is motions and uh, causes of action, Southern District of New York, um, all of these things, you can actually count all the ways to express it. And then that's the way you extract it. Um, and it turns out that I've, uh, I'm part of the nonprofit called Sally, S-A-L-I. That is the standards advancement for the legal industry. It is the legal data standard that's being used by Thomson Reuters and by Lexis and by Dr. Alarm Fastcase and by Next Chapter uh, and all of the companies, including iManage, uh, NetDocuments, and a whole bunch of others um, to be able to say, okay, um, everyone that I just mentioned is counting things called motions to dismiss. How about we all use the same unique computer identifier for motion mm -hmm. to dismiss? So if you, uh, as a user, want to be able to um, run an API call, to any right. one of those companies, you can send that identifier to be able to get the most dismissed from them. So at any rate, so that's uh, so if you can count it, uh, you should use Sally uh, to be able to do that. And this, in particular, for your lawyers that are parts of law firms that you're thinking about, what are the areas of law that I care about? Um, you should use Sally. And the reason you should use Sally is because we're being used by Foundation and Intap, and Clio is thinking about using us. Um, so if you use any of these things, uh, you want to be able to uh, you could. Option one is to create a homegrown taxonomy that you're mm -hmm. essentially is, is just yours uh, that can't talk to anybody, right? Because everybody else is on the Sally right. bandwagon, right, right. or you could jump on the Sally bandwagon and be able to say, okay, because I'm using Sally, now Thompson Reuters, I'm uh, out of the box compatible. Now, you know, I manage, I'm out of the box compatible. Now, net documents, I'm out of the box compatible. So all of that's to say that, uh, uh, I guess, a technology, if you will, mm -hmm. is the Sally data standard uh, that Sally, uh, that Fastcase and Next Chapter and Dr. Alarm all use and are out of the box uh, working. Well, it seems like you might want to get the courts, the clerks to start implementing something like that. Indeed. Uh, and that's, uh, we've actually talked about that, that we, uh, for example, the courts have a nature of suit code on the federal mm -hmm. side, uh, where they'll say the nature of suit code is the trademark yep. is the nature yep. of suit code. Um, but of course, I as a plaintiff's lawyer know that uh, who makes that nature of suit code, I do as a plaintiff's lawyer, right? But there are actually 10 causes of action in that complaint. Trademark is one of them, but it also includes copyright. And it also includes trade secrets. And it right. also includes all sorts of other things. Um, so we are actually in the process uh, at Doc Alarm of extracting from the complaints all of the causes of action, count one, count two, count three, count four, uh, and then actually giving, uh, extracting better data than the courts themselves have. The courts only know a trademark. They don't know about the copyright or trade secret thing that is count two and through count seven. Um, so we've actually talked about ways that, uh, you know, perhaps the courts could use our technology to give them better insights as to the types of cases that are going through their court system. And for the third? I would say that the, the approach uh, for using technology is uh, lots of people use Slack, uh, but mm -hmm. Slack is really our hub uh, to be able to, uh, you know, email is slow, Slack is fast, uh, Slack, uh, you could jot things down quickly. Um, there's just no way to be able to easily uh, match the Slack or Teams or any other um, way uh, to do that seems like if anybody is doing business in a way that's not involving something like Slack or Teams, uh, they're probably doing it wrong. So, so if... Slack integrates with Fastcase? 
So I mean, we use Slack as our communication hub. Uh, okay. So we so we uh, we use Slack. We use uh, like Zapier uh, links to be able to say every time somebody gives us an NPS score, that is a um, uh, you know what is the odds of you recommending Fastcase or not? Right. Those NPS scores go into Slack uh, every time that uh, you know we. We have lots of integrations with Slack. So this is a, essentially email is secondary uh, to Slack. Slack is the primary way that we communicate. Email is kind of secondary. Well, I got to ask, what are your three favorite plugins for Slack? Uh, I guess there's the um, there's like plugins to be able to say this. Uh, that seems like a OneDrive uh, attachment. Do you want to be able to do that in line? Uh, and uh, that's that's uh, something I use frequently um, for fun. It's uh, Giphy. Uh, so to the extent you want to put GIFs uh, into right. into yep. the Slack, that's kind of a fun one uh, for productivity. Um, I mean, it, it's hard to call it a plugin, but Zapier uh, is a way that we you know are able to ingest a lot of things into Slack. So I guess I can call that a plugin. So am I allowed to ask, or is this too much the secret sauce? What is your CRM for Fastcase? Or do you have some sort of CRM? Yeah, no, it's a no secret sauce. It's Salesforce is our okay. CRM. All right, well, let's get into question number three. What are three tech tools that you feel attorneys are underutilizing in their research and writing? I would say that, uh, you know, one of the tech tools is just being a data-driven lawyer. I gave mm -hmm. the example earlier, but, uh, you know, uh, something where you could say, you know, the odds are pretty good or not bad versus uh, the odds are, you know, 33% uh, to be yep. able to win this kind of motion. Um, I think that there is a real question as to uh, if I don't know that 33% number, and I suggest that the client spend $15,000 on right. uh, that motion, um, is that an ethical uh, breach, right? Have I, have I suggested, uh, or do I, if I uh, know that there's a tool to say that the odds are one in three, am I obligated to tell the clients, hey, the odds are one in three, and give them, uh, and then if they eyes wide open want to be able to say, yes, I want to file that motion, uh, then that's, uh, that's their decision. Um, versus my saying the odds are pretty good, does that mean above 50%? Uh, right. So am I being misleading in saying its odds are pretty good? Um, anyway, so there's there's uh, the idea that if analytics are tools that are available, and they are, um, am I as a lawyer obligated to use those tools to help me in the practice of law? Uh, so that's, uh, that's thing number one. Uh, thing number two is to... Uh, on the contract side, I work a lot with uh, contract lifecycle management vendors. Uh, that is people mm -hmm. that are using machine learning to be able to ingest millions of contracts and be able to feed them back. Um, and so I would say that uh, if you're an in-house lawyer that has to review what are all the contracts that we have, uh, if we uh, if you aren't putting them into a contract lifecycle management uh, vendor and be able to extract when all the, due, uh, all the due dates are and which ones require venue in New York versus California versus Texas. Um, if you're not doing that programmatically, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, so that's probably thing number two. Um, thing number three is uh, something I've thought about a lot as a litigator uh, is that I would do, often do breach of contract cases. And I would often look back and say, you know, the lawyer who drafted this contract 10 years ago had no idea how big of a, a crap show uh, they're going to be seeing uh, mm -hmm. as a result of the poor language that that person drafted. Uh, and their client uh, probably thought this is the best lawyer on the planet with the client not realizing that they're going to spend millions of dollars in litigation uh, based on the the mock-up of this poorly worded language that the, the, the uh, lawyer did. So anyway, so uh, a third tool that we've been talking about is perhaps in the drafting tools to be able to run language uh, through the litigation data set to say, mm -hmm. hey, this language actually has been litigated 40 times. Maybe you don't want to use this language. Okay, maybe, use, uh, maybe you use the counterparts language that uh, that has not been litigated in that way. So mm -hmm. uh, almost a, um, a proactive, you know, better law uh, from a proactive side rather than a reactive side. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Damon, I appreciate you sharing that. 
Uh, that being said, tell us, where can people find you? Sure. I'm on Twitter at first name, last name, Damien Real. Uh, and then uh, on email, to the extent you want to email me, it's first initial D, uh, last name, R-I-E-H-L at fastcase.com. Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to have all that in the show notes and more. I want to thank you again for being a guest and have a great day. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at Michael DJ at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.